me to Isaiah 63. We're looking at verse 7 through Isaiah 64. We did the first, um, the first section of Isaiah 63, verses 7 through uh, about 16 last week, and we will continue on today, but I'm going to read the whole section. Isaiah 63, starting with verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of them, his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, desert they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned, and our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I think uh, if any of us were to get together and discuss life together, we would find that we would have 
a pattern of constant difficulties that we could discuss with each other, right? Our lives are kind of constantly going out and in of, dif- in of difficulties. And some of us never go out. Some of us just are always in, right? <laughs> but the one thing is for sure that every one of us have difficulties. And it's characteristic of our lives. And we could spend hours discussing your difficulties and my difficulties if we were wanted to do that. And Job said this in Job 14, verse 1, when he said, Man who is born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. Isn't that true? We could bank on this one thing that our lives are full of trouble and difficulties. And so the question is why? What is the reason that we have these difficulties? And obviously I can't go into your life and explain the detailed reasons why, uh, the specific reasons why you're going through the difficulties you're going through or that I'm going through. But I believe that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that we can put a blanket statement over all our difficulties and say God wants to awaken us. God wants to put us in a position where we are sober-minded, where we recognize our desperation for God, and we cry out to Him for salvation. God wants us to be in that position, and He is determined to keep us in that position. The times of difficulties we experience are like God blowing a megaphone. I've said this before, but I think it's It's a good reminder that it's almost like the difficulties are a megaphone from God waking us up, saying, you need me. Things are not okay. You are desperate for me. And we are never allowed to think for that long of a period of time that we are okay without God. You know, if we never went through difficulties, I could guarantee that we would not live lives the way we're supposed to. I can guarantee that we would not be crying out to God. We would be filled with pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, and we would think that we're doing pretty well. But our great physician is keeping us in the right posture of faith, depending, urgency on God. (laughs) Praise God for His grace, even though we don't like it when the difficulties come our way. You know, someone... Uh, Some people said, well, God is not ultimately responsible for coronavirus. And I'm like, yes, he is. (laughs) He is sovereign. How can you say anything happens without God ultimately being responsible for it? Um, I'm purposing it for his glory, right, and for our good. So how are you supposed to respond to these difficulties? And, and the answer is very obviously clear, isn't it, from what we've been discussing. Psalm 50 verse 15 tells us why there are difficulties, why these things are in our lives. And the answer is that we might call upon him in the day of trouble. And he says, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. We are to call upon God in our day of trouble. That's why there are troubles. So that we would call upon him, and when we call upon him, we glorify him as God. We say, you are my Savior, and God delights when we cry out to him. And guess what? We get the saving. (laughs) We get the joy of being saved, and he gets the glory of being our Savior. So it's a win-win situation, isn't it? So the right response is to cry out to God for salvation. 
Now, if we are honest, we would have to say that we should always be in the posture of desperate dependence on God. Because as long as we live in a fallen world, we are always in a desperate condition for salvation. Right? The, the problem is, and this is the problem, the problem is we don't always realize it. The problem is we forget. We, we, we don't remember very well. Right? We have spiritual amnesia to the reality we live in. You and I need food. You and I need health. You and I need air. You and I need protection every moment of our lives. You have no more guarantee that you will live the next moment than those who were in the building in Florida when it collapsed. Worst of all, our sin is constantly threatening to destroy us, isn't it? Our sin is constantly threatening to destroy our health, our family, our reputation, and ultimately lead us to eternal judgment. So we are desperate people, aren't we? We are in a desperate situation, and the problem is, the problem is, we often don't recognize it. We often live in unbelief as if we didn't need God, as if we were not desperate. If this is the way we should live, if we should live as people who are desperate for God constantly, if that's what it means to live by faith, and the question is, how do I cry out to God? How should I cry out to him? What should I say? How should I argue with God in prayer? And by the way, scriptures is filled with arguments, building our case before God for why he should save us. And by the way, God loves it when we pray that way because that is the prayer of faith. It's counting on his promises. It's counting on the truth of who he is and saying, God, you have said this. God, you are this way. Therefore, save me. And almost every, every verse in the Bible says that. Thank you. Almost every verse in the Bible, when we hear people praying, they're building their arguments for God for why he should save us. So Isaiah is our teacher today. He is um, teaching us how to cry out to God to save us and to deliver us. He is showing us what desperate prayer looks like because he is facing a very desperate time. He is, he is facing a terrible time in the history of Israel. And as a prophet, he's looking into the future, and it's as if he's with the people of the time, experiencing the difficulties they are experiencing. And so he, he intercedes for them and calls out to God for deliverance. And so I'm going to pull out from Isaiah's prayer five biblical arguments you can make to God for why he should save you in difficult times. And these are prayers that we can pray to God. These are the basis that we should build our prayers upon as well. So first, you should argue with God to save you based on the fact that you are completely needy and helpless without him. Now look at the condition that God's people were in in verses, chapter 64, verses 18 through 19. You think we're going through difficult times? Well, imagine what the prophet was going through during this time. Imagine what the people were going through. It says this, your, peop your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. So the question is, how might we understand the badness of their condition in those verses? How, would, how, how are we to understand how bad of a condition they are in? And we understand how bad of a condition they are in by understanding what they were supposed to be like. 
what was supposed to be going on, what they were supposed to become like, right? And so what were God's people supposed to be like? And notice the, the, the way they are defined, the title that they are given. They're the holy people of God, right? They were supposed to be set apart for God. They were supposed to be set apart as people who worship God, who are different than all the rest of the nations. They had the temple. They had the place where God would meet with them. They were supposed to represent God to the world, weren't they? And they were supposed to pursue God's purposes. But what did they become? Everything they were supposed to be was stripped away from them. The land they dwelt in was taken away from them. The temple was destroyed. They had engaged in false worship, in idol worship. They were helpless in defense against this world that was around them. The nations had come in and devastated them. And this is kind of like the fall, isn't it? We were created for a purpose, but everything fell apart, didn't it? Everything fell apart. We were no longer set apart for God and for his purposes. Their condition is described as being so bad, it was as if God had never ruled over them. Now you can imagine one of the Israelites saying, well, God had ruled over us. And someone from one of the nations saying, that's a good joke. <laughs> there is absolutely no evidence that God had ever ruled over you. You are not even a people anymore. You're, you're nothing. And what could they say? They would have nothing in response because that's exactly the way it appeared. It was as if God had never ruled over them. So why were they in this helpless, terrible condition? Were they innocent victims? Well, not at all, according to chapter 64, verse 5. They were in this condition because of their sin. Notice the second half of verse 5 says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? The reason they were in this condition is because of their sin. Because they had rebelled against God and God rightfully responded with anger. That is the rightful response. In fact, what it suggests here is that they sinned, God became angry, and they sinned even more. It was an in-your-face sinning. And then he says, and shall we be saved after this? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Shall we be saved after all this? We often don't think of our sin as being a big deal. Isaiah helps us to understand how big of a deal our sin is by describing the nature of it. Now, this is a great prayer because he doesn't coat over sin. And each and every one of us needs to understand the true nature of our sin. And in verses uh, 6 through 7, he describes sin in all its utter ugliness. This is disgusting. But a lot of us, even who've been Christians for quite a while, do not understand the true nature of our sin. We often hear of sin described as being missing the mark, right? Like shooting an arrow at the target and missing it. And that is absolutely true. That's the way it's described. But there is much more to sin than that. That is just a, a little bit of the reality of the nature of what sin is. So sin is described in verses 6 through 7 as something that pollutes us. 
It's something that completely pollutes us. Our, our whole selves are polluted by it. It's kind of like a, a leper. This disgusting, gross um, um, pollution that overtakes our body. A disease that overtakes us. You know, the, a leper was not a, a allowed to approach the presence of God in the temple because they were unclean. And that was a picture of the devastation of sin. And the reality is that sin pollutes us so that we become as a leper. We cannot approach the presence of God because of our sin. In the Old Testament, that was a picture of the reality of our sin. We cannot approach God because of our sin. We are cast outside of his presence, just like Genesis, when they sinned against God. God cannot behold sin in his presence. He is angry at sin. So our sin makes us unacceptable to God, outside of his favor. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Now, we think of being polluted. A lot of us thought, well, we're 99% polluted. You know, we're pretty bad. That's awful how polluted we were because of our sin. But notice, your sin so pollutes you that even your best and most righteous deeds, the best works you can possibly do, look like filthy rags to God. Do you recognize what it says there? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, obviously, they're not talking about the righteousness of a believer who's walking in faith. Such righteousness is not as filthy rags. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. But the words used to describe how God views our most righteous deeds apart from Christ is minstrel dirty, rotten rags. That's literally what it means there. And you might say, well, that's disgusting. That is gross. Why would he use such gross and disgusting language? The grossest language you could possibly use. And the reason is because he is trying to portray sin to look as bad as it really is. And we have such a difficult time Understanding how sinful we are. We have a terrible time understanding it. And so what he says here is not only was our unrighteousness filthy, but he says even our best works was as filthy rags, as polluted, gross, stained menstrual rags. That is gross. And we would be doing God's word wrong to describe it in any other way. Imagine you just did the best you could possibly do at something. Perhaps it was your, your piano skills. You're a great pianist. Or perhaps you're an artist and you just did a great work. Or, or an athlete and you just uh, ran a great race. And imagine asking someone, well, how did you think I did? And not just anybody, but someone who matters more than anyone in your life. And this is your best sport. This is your best work you can possibly. This is your gifting. And you put your whole self into it to the best you could. And imagine if they responded by saying, well, it was like filthy rags. It was disgusting. It was gross. Well, this is what God thinks of your best works. Feeding the homeless, giving money to the poor, 
Apart from Christ, it is as filthy rags in the sight of God. When not done by faith, it is as filthy rags in the sight of God. It does you no good. It is self-righteous works before God. Can it possibly be any worse than this? Could it possibly be any worse than this? We need to see the reality of our sin. And the answer is no. It can't be. This is as bad as it gets. But then he goes on and says, not only that, but also your sin causes you yourself to fade away like a leaf and be blown away with a wind. Are you fading away? Are you shriveling up? Well, some of you don't realize it yet, but you're going to realize it. You are shriveling up. You're going to fade away. You're going to be blown away like a leaf. That's the reality of life, isn't it? Our sin is destroying us. We can see the effects of it as we get older. Not only that, but if you want to top it off, like the cherry on the top of your condition, no one even cares enough to cry out to God to save them. That's what it says. That's what Isaiah says. So here you are in this polluted state. You've completely missed the mark. And not only that, but you're polluted. And even your best works are as filthy rags before God. It's self-righteousness. It's rebellion against God. Your best works are self-righteous rebellion against God. He looks at his filthy rags. That's the natural, unbelieving person. Not only that, but you're wasting away. You see it all over you. Your whole body is wasting away. But in all of that, you still do not cry out to God. This adds insult to injury. This is as bad as it gets. This is our condition. We are totally depraved. And you see, the primary, most foundational reason why we don't cry out to God as we should is because we do not see our sin accurately. We do not see the reality of our condition, and so we do not cry out to God. Even as believers, we often don't recognize our need for God, and so we don't live in constant dependence on God. If only we could realize how much we needed God every moment, from the moment you're saved to the moment you die. You are always just as dependent on God. You absolutely need Him. We need to ask God, help me to realize how sinful I am, how much I need you. Open my eyes up to show me that I need you more than anything. So second, you should argue with God to save you based on the fact that he is completely sovereign. Now, to be sovereign means to have supreme authority and to have supreme power. And so remember, we are completely needy, and here we are praying based on the fact that God is completely powerful and has all authority in his sovereignty. So these work together here. The prophet prays to God to save them based on his sovereignty in chapter 53, verse 17. That's where we uh, finished last week. So we pick up in chapter 53, verse 17. Listen to these words. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. (laughs) What? Wait, wait. What did he just pray here? Think about this for a minute. Think about the words. Who prays like this? Why do you make us wander from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that we fear you not? 
Sounds like he's asking God, why do you make us do bad things? Why do you make us live in unbelief? If you heard this prayer, wouldn't you automatically think you need to correct this person? Wouldn't you think this person has the wrong understanding of God, and maybe they do? <laughs> but imagine if, if you heard this prayer, you would think this person necessarily has a wrong understanding of God. And so we might say one possibility is that the translation does not communicate what is meant to be communicated here, right? Well, that would be an easy way out, wouldn't it? But apparently, according to those who are much smarter than me, what it's saying here is exactly what it's intended to communicate. <laughs> that the translation is, is not difficult to understand. It is very clear what it's trying to say. So this leaves us with a few options for how to understand what Isaiah is saying here. The first option is that the intercessor is wrong, right? He is so delirious because of his emotional state that he is accusing God of something he did not do. We all know that a broken heart can cause us to be delirious and have trouble interpret interpreting life and the things that are going on around us, right? Now, there are a couple of problems with this option. First, there's no indication that what he's saying here is wrong. Second, he would be uh, schizophrenic, right? In verse 10, he has clearly said that they were guilty for their sins. And so according to this interpretation, he's wrong and now accusing God of causing them to sin. And he's not schizophrenic. He's not saying one thing at one place and then changing his mind in the very next verse, right? A second better option is that the intercessor is asking God why he judicially, judiciously hardened their hearts after they kept sinning, preventing them from returning. And this is absolutely true in Scripture, by the way. And we don't know what the point is, but God judiciously sometimes hardens hearts so that they cannot return. And really what this is, is, is God judging sin with sin. God gives us over to sin as the consequence for our sin. And we see this in Romans 1. It's all over the place. That the consequence of sin is sin. And that's very true in Scripture, but I don't think that's the most straightforward reading of the text. A third option that I think is most likely is the intercessor is asking God why he is making them wander from his ways and hardening their hearts by withholding his grace from them, not coming to them with um, sovereign grace. Now, we already know from Isaiah's prayer that they are not guiltless. <laughs> that, in fact, they are as sinful as you could be, right? And, in fact, remember what he said, that they do not even call out to him. Even their righteousness is as filthy rags. He has put them to the bottom of the sea. They are dead in their sins, right? This is a picture of the depraved person right here. You cannot possibly get more depraved and wicked than they are. They are dead in their sins. And God has the right to leave them in their wicked and sinful condition. And nothing apart from heart change should cause them to come to God in the first place. So he is asking, why did you not sovereignly intervene in our behalf? And what Isaiah is claiming here is exactly what God said would happen to him throughout his ministry in chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. Remember the words, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Remember, God is telling Isaiah exactly what's going to happen in his ministry. 
And then in verse 10 he says, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah is not as much surprised here at what God is doing, but he's saying, I have been through this so long. Why, O Lord, do you continue to harden the hearts? It's not as if Isaiah is surprised by this. This is exactly what God said would happen. You can hear the same sovereignty of God explained in Romans 9, verse 11, where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now we have to remember, and I've said this over and over again, but it's really important, that whatever love means, the opposite is hated. So you can't say hated means loved a little less, unless love means love just a little more, <laughs> not that much. But left to ourselves, we would have followed the path of Esau, and so would have Jacob. But God graciously intervened with Jacob and gave Esau what he deserved. The reason Jacob believed can only be attributed to the sovereign grace of God. It's as if Isaiah says, why have you treated us like Esau, your people? What I think confirms this view and this understanding of what Isaiah is praying here is the request that immediately follows. What does he say immediately following this request? He says, return to us. In other words, think about this. Return to us so that we can return to you. We will not return to you unless you first return to us. The only hope of them trusting and believing in God is if God breaks through their hardened hearts and gives them life. Because of our sinfulness, we cannot return to you if you don't first return to us. God, you must intervene. This is desperate. This is needy. And this should inform us how to pray to God. Lord, I am so wicked, I will not desire you unless you change my heart. God, give me a desire for you. Give me faith. And so we pray for others. Lord, save their souls. Save him. Give him faith to believe in you that he might be saved. I will return to you if you first return to me. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? Well, this is the controversial part, but the good news is that the prophet answers it for me <laughs> in these texts. Whew, right? The prophet explains what he means by God being sovereign in the picture he gives of the potter in the clay. In chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Understanding what it means that God is sovereign is simply to understand the authority that the potter has over the clay, right? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, God, you are sovereign just like a potter is sovereign over the clay, right? So how much authority does a potter have over the clay? Well, he can do whatever he wants with it, right? He is in complete authority, complete charge over the clay, you know, the clay has no right to say to the potter, according to Romans 9, 21, why have you made me like this? God is the potter and you are the clay. And so Isaiah doesn't conclude because of this, well, therefore the Lord is sovereign, therefore I'm not going to pray. <laughs> right? That's, as one person said, that's devilish thinking. That's unbelievable. Right? But that's not the way Isaiah thinks. It actually compels him to pray. And notice it compels him to proclaim God's word. Isn't that crazy? 
If anything is going to happen, it's going to be because of God. This should be the foundation that causes this church to pray passionately. Because when we are preaching, there are a bunch of dead people out there. Unless God works, nothing is going to happen. And so we should be the first people who pray. And we should pray passionately. Because God must work. We should be the people who pray more than anyone in this world. And we should preach knowing that God is going to work through the preaching of his word. And that's exactly what Isaiah does. And if God is sovereign, he can do something. He has the power to transform dead sinners and give them life. Third, you should argue with God to say, based on the fact that you are trusting in him. So notice, you are needy, God is sovereign, and you are to trust in him. This all works together. God saves those who are trusting in him. Therefore, you should pray for God to save based on the fact that you are trusting him. Now, Isaiah acknowledges something that's very important about God in his prayer that separates him from all others. That God saves all who wait on him. In verse 4 through 5, the first part there. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So what does it mean to wait for the Lord? Now really what that means is to believe in him. That's simply what it means to wait for the Lord. It's to trust in his way of saving, and it's to trust in his timing of saving, right? And so this is almost an active faith here. Um, faith requires waiting on God. Impatience is not faith. Doing things our own way, saving ourselves is not faith. But waiting on God is what faith looks like. Many have waited on other gods, and every single one of them have not delivered. Whether it's fame, riches, power, authority, whatever gods we have waited on, whatever gods we have trusted in, every one of them have been found to be in vain. They have failed us, and they always will fail us. The true God, on the other hand, is unlike any other gods, and that he has proven that he always saves those who wait on him. He has a history in God's word of saving everyone who trusts in him. And that's really what biblical history is all about. Remember Abraham's waiting for his son. God says, I will save, I will deliver. How about Israel crossing the Red Sea? God delivers no one has ever waited on God in vain. And this means you can be assured that God will deliver you if you're waiting on him. You can therefore tell God, I wait on you, Lord. I'm waiting on you to save me. I am poor and needy. You are sovereign, all-powerful, almighty God. And I will wait on you. I will wait on you. I will trust in you. And I will look to you. Now that's praying, isn't it? After expressing his confidence that God saves those who wait on him, Isaiah says something that sounds contradictory. He says, God meets with him who joyfully works righteousness. <laughs> wait a second, that sounds like it's contradictory, isn't it? Does God save those who trust in him or those who work righteousness? And I think the answer is actually not difficult at all. To, to wait on the Lord is, the, fr is uh, the, the fruit of waiting on the Lord, the fruit of trusting in God, is working joyfully righteousness. <laughs> that, that is what it looks like. You are not going to work 
righteousness joyfully. There we go, I got it all mixed up. You're not going to work righteousness joyfully if you're not waiting on God. The fruit of that is that our lives will change. And notice it says here that the same thing with working righteousness joyfully is remembering God. And that's what the verse says, that they're synonymous. And remembering God is trusting and believing in him. And so he's not saying something different. He's not saying something contradictory. He is saying, if you are trusting and waiting on the Lord, you will be working righteousness joyfully. You'll be remembering him. And God will save and deliver you. (laughs) Fourth, you should argue with God to save based on the fact that he is your father. You have a relationship with him through faith in Christ. And those who are trusting God are bound to God in a father-son relationship. And that's what Isaiah cries out to God to save them based on the fact that he is their father. You know, we might ask the question is, in light of our sinfulness, why would God even care? Why would God care? You look at the whole argument and you would think God has no reason to care for his people. There is no basis for why God should ever save. And there is only one sure basis why we could ever cry out to God to save us. And the basis is because you are my Father. And so when we pray because of the work of Christ on the cross, that's why we say in Jesus' name, amen, we are connected to God as our Father. And so we base our prayers, you hear hear me because of what Jesus did on the cross. He has dealt with my sin, therefore there's no barrier between me and God, and therefore I am now a child of God. I am rightly connected with the Father. And therefore, God, you must save me. You are bound to save me. Now, it might not look like the way I want it to come about. It might look different, but you are bound to save me. You are my father. How good of a father is God? Now, actually, for God being our father makes this joyful and somewhat uh, painful, right? You might wonder, why am am I in this situation if you're my father? And then you might think joyfully, but God can deliver me if he's my father, (laughs) right? And we see both sides in these prayers. What does it look like to pray to God based on your relationship with God? Lord, you are a father. Come act like our father. Deliver me from my sins. I am poor and needy. You are powerful and mighty to save. Therefore, deliver me and save me. Fifth and finally, as we've got to keep moving along, you should argue with God to save based on the glory that your salvation will bring to his name. Isaiah makes the most bold request you could ever imagine when he prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. He is asking God to come down in the most dramatic and powerful way imaginable. Why, how could you pray such bold requests? And the answer is, on the basis of his glorious name. (laughs) And notice he prays, oh, that you, we read that, verses two, to make your name known to your adversaries. This is the reason that he wants him to do this, and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. The way Isaiah prays here is a model, an example for us of how we are to pray in such a way that glorifies him. You know, one of the biggest problems in our prayers is we often don't entrust God with the fullness of our difficulty. We don't pray bold prayers. 
We don't say, God, I am desperately in need. The psalmist had no problem praying the fullness, the, the literal full reality of what he was experiencing. And we rob God of the glory of delivering us fully when we don't pray based on the reality of what we're experiencing and on his greatness. We glorify God very little when we pray for him to do little. We must entrust fully to God's hands that he can save us. In other words, we must cease our feeble prayers and pray boldly as Isaiah does here. Come down and render the heavens because I need you desperately. And then Isaiah also glorifies God by praying for him to do unexpected things or in ways we never looked for. And it's not that God is going to do different things than his character, according to his character, or different than his word tells us, but that he loves to do things that are strange and unusual in ways we never could have imagined because he's glorified by doing it that way, right? It glorifies him. So the question is, did God answer Isaiah's request? Yes. Jesus is Isaiah's answer. He did render the heavens. He did rip them open. He did defeat the greatest of enemies. And he did it in a way you never would have imagined. (laughs) An unexpected way. A way you never would have looked for. And God is glorified and pleased in that. Right? Isaiah never would have expected this quite like this. So why do you think God brought this difficulty on Israel? Why send the Babylonians against Israel? Do you think maybe so that the faith of God's people would come out in cries of prayer to God to deliver them from their circumstances? Do you think maybe that Isaiah would pray this very prayer that we see here and that God would save and be glorified in doing so? Why do you think there are difficulties in your life? I know you have them. Maybe so that you would be awakened to cry out to God to save you. You know, it's so tempting to turn to formulas when we're going through difficulties. Uh, And it's a great temptation for me as a pastor. You know, there's something that feels really good in telling you the three steps to to defeat anger. And that's not always bad to do, is it? (laughs) Right? It's not bad to do. Whatever difficulty you're facing, it's nice to be able to give some steps to overcome it. But the Bible doesn't chiefly give us formulas. And we must be warned against turning to formulas as the basis for why we respond and how we respond to our troubles. The answer is God. God gives us the answer and it's a person. It's a mighty God who is able to save. Faith cries out to God to save me. I must always call people to God. And not give them these cheap trinkets of answers and formulas for how they can be delivered from their problem. There are none. There's only one answer, and that is God. He is the only one who can deliver us. And we must constantly turn each other to God, not to cheap answers and ways to help you out of your difficulties. Cry out to God. He is the only one who can save you. Unbelief does not cry out to God when you're going through struggles. And so we can ask ourselves, am I living in faith? Do I cry out to God in my struggle? Or am I living in unbelief? You know, when God gives to us things, faith responds with thankfulness. When God takes away things, faith responds with crying out to him, God save me. 
And that is the pattern of a believer. God gives, thank you, God. Takes away, God, save me. (laughs) And that is what our lives should be characterized by if we are living by faith. This past week, I was able to connect with one of my young friends who has a life-threatening brain issue. He has a malignant tumor. And the doctors don't have much hope for him. Uh, he, set, he had surgery last year and is going for another surgery soon. He says this past year was great because it drove him to prayer like he never has before. He said it drove him closer to God than he'd ever been before. This is what faith looks like. Johnny Erickson Tada, who has been a quadriplegic for, I believe, 18, since, she, since she was 18 years old, and suffered through cancer, said this about her troubles. Boy, when Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, he, was, he wasn't kidding. In this world there will be trouble. Perhaps the gift of this cancer and pain and quadriplegia is that it forces me to recognize my desperate, desperate need of God. And that is a good thing. Let's pray. Dear Father, we need you. God, we thank you that since the fall that this life is messed up. We thank you for the reminders, God, that we are not okay. And God, I pray that you'd open up our minds to realize that we need a Savior. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Everything is falling apart. We are dying. Life is crumbling around us. Lord, we are getting older. Lord, there is no power or might we have against death. It is an enemy that that will destroy us and eternally so. But Lord, I thank you for your mighty, mighty salvation that you have brought through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here, Lord, who is hanging over your judgment, who your judgment is hanging over their heads, Lord, first of all, we thank you for the reminders all around us. But God, I pray that you would save them today. I pray that you would show them that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That there is salvation only found in you, Jesus. And there is no hope outside of you. And Lord, for all of us who are waiting on you, Lord, we cry out to you as our Father. Lord, we pray that you would save us. We pray that you would deliver us. Lord, strengthen our faith. Let us not drift away from you. The best place to be is on our knees, depending on you for our salvation. And we pray, O Lord, that you would keep us there. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your goodness and your great love for us. You are our Savior. We wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.